This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Welcome to our podcast on office occupation. I'm Sarah Morley, and I'm a partner in our commercial real estate team here at Charles Russell Speechley's and lead of our office occupiers group, focusing on advising clients on their occupational needs. I'm joined today by Emma Priest from our real estate disputes team and Helen Hutton, one of our planning partners. We see stories in the press on an almost daily basis of many staff keen to return to the office, but wanting to work from home at least part of the working week. We see some businesses wanting to retain only town centre spaces for meetings, whilst getting rid of space on business parks, which are only for working, while others are wanting to be sure that the spaces they have allow everyone to collaborate together. With all of that uncertainty going on, some businesses will find themselves potentially with more office space than they need, or offices that aren't quite right or in the right place for what they do need. So what we're going to talk about today is a few thoughts and experiences we have had in dealing with that potentially excess space. Emma is going to start by speaking about break clauses. Emma? Thanks, Sarah. Um, yes, so starting with break clauses. So a break clause, um, also known as a break option, is a provision allowing a landlord and or a tenant to end the lease before the expiry of the fixed term. So the break clause may be exercisable at a particular point or at fixed intervals or at any point in time or on the occurrence of a particular event. The right to break gives a party flexibility and the opportunity to respond to changing market conditions, which is obviously what we're seeing right now. Um, it's usually something that's negotiated at the start, um, at the least as part of the heads of term stage, although it is possible to vary at least to add in a break by way of a uh, due to variation at a later date, if that is agreed between the parties. Um, so we can be approached um, in relation to all of these matters, um, in particular on the contentious side when a party would like to serve a notice or if they've received a notice and they want to know if it's valid or not. In terms of general points to make on this, uh, a break notice is a contractual notice, therefore the terms of the lease will govern the form of the notice, the content of it, um, and the lease does need to be carefully reviewed and, and fully complied with in every case in order for it to be valid. Um, we can also be approached when parties simply want to know what their options are, what their break option is in the lease, if they've got one, and uh, how soon they need to think about exercising it. Um, in particular, there can also be conditions, um, conditions rather, attached to the break, and um, it's, uh, these can be quite cumbersome, which I'll, I'll touch upon uh, shortly, and it's, it's always good to know exactly where you stand in, in, on that. So as I say, it's not unusual for conditions to be attached to the exercise of the break clause. And if these are not complied with or if the break notice is not validly served, then the break will not be properly exercised. So these two things usually have to join up together. So whilst break options often appear quite straightforward uh, and they sound quite straightforward, it, that's rarely the case that uh, we see in practice. So in terms of this sort of popular conditions, First one is that the tenant has complied with all the covenants in the lease, in particular payment of rent, and rent may also include service charges and insurance costs. And this is usually expressed to be complied with as at the date of the break. Uh, so the tenant needs to ensure that uh, the rent and all other sums are paid in full and on time. And what we can see some difficulties uh, is when the break date falls between the middle of a rental period. The prudent approach here is to overpay rather than to apportion the amount due up until, up until the break date. Um, although a tenant would be entitled to any refund in respect of any rent paid after the break date, unless the lease expressly provides for this. Another condition that we see is that the tenant has complied with their repairing obligations in the lease. What's required here is, is usually expressly stated in the lease that the tenant may wish to take advice on 
uh, what level of repair uh, is needed practically um, and perhaps also want to agree with the landlord um, this point as well if it's unclear. Um, another condition that we see is a quite a contentious one, which is that the tenant has given vacant possession of the property. So that means in practical terms, at a minimum, that the uh, tenant must have objectively ceased using the premises for any purpose, and the landlord must be able to assume and enjoy immediate and exclusive possession of the premises. So the requirement to provide vacant possession is subject to quite extensive case law, um, often relating to items left behind by the tenant and whether that means vacant possession has or hasn't been provided. At one end of the scale, we've seen that rubbish left behind it has been in breach of the obligation to provide vacant possession. And in that particular scenario, the tenant was found not to have validly exercised their break. Um, we've had another case fairly recently, only last year, actually, which was uh, opposite end, but also at the extreme side, where a tenant had attempted to return the property with vacant possession, um, but they'd actually returned it in a condition that was said to be dysfunctional and unoccupiable, um, as the tenant had, as part of their repair covenant, carried out such extensive stripping out works. They also ended up removing some of the landlord's fixtures, um, so they'd gone too far in that context. Ultimately, it's a question of fact in each case as to whether the conditions have been complied with. But these clauses are uh, construed really strictly, so it's important to take advice and to know where you stand. Um, the next thing I'm going to mention very briefly is surrenders. So um, for those of you who may not be familiar with this option, it's essentially where a landlord and tenant agree that the lease is to terminate on a particular day. So this is an agreement that's reached outside the express options for termination set out in the lease, and it's usually achieved through negotiation. I should mention that the landlord or the tenant, they're not obliged to accept a surrender of a commercial lease, um, although it's, they may be happy to do this if there's some commercial benefit to them. Um, so in the landlord's case, they may wish to redevelop the property or um, they may have another tenant ready and able to take up occupation quite quickly on better and improved terms. So. Um, it's entirely dependent on the circumstances and also the parties negotiating positions as to whether this is a viable option and, and a successful one as well. Um, so that's breaks and surrenders. Um, Sarah, I'll pass it to you. I think you're going to talk about assigning and subletting now. Thanks, Emma. Now, of course, as Emma's mentioned, not all leases will have break clauses or will have break clauses that can be operated at the right time. So if you're not able to bring your lease to an end via a break clause or the surrender option that Emma's spoken about, some other possible ways to divest yourself of that financial liability of the rent under the lease are by means of assignment or by subletting. And I thought I would mention some points to consider if you're trying to divest that way. Of course, both of these options require there to be a willing third party to take the space, which may be more difficult at the moment. But one of the things that we're seeing currently is more clients talking about or, or actually taking small overflow space with flexibility or regional space on a short-term basis rather than a big headquarters move if they can possibly help it at the moment whilst they figure out precisely what their longer-term needs will be going forward. So there may be the market for an assignment or underletting um, dependent of course on the space itself and, and the price. In addition to the willing occupier that you'll need on both assignment and sublettings, you would generally, in most circumstances, need the consent of the landlord as well. On an assignment in a potentially challenging market, which we may be heading into at the moment, we tend to see landlords being more reluctant to let go of tenants who they consider to be a good financial covenant in favour of a lesser one. So we are seeing some more reluctance to give that consent. If that's thought likely to be a concern in, in a particular scenario, 
one of the important things to do is to put together as full a package of information about the assignee as possible to send to the landlord, always having regard to the exact terms of the lease and what's required to be provided, as of course every lease is different in, in, in that regard. And as part of that process, we may well advise being very careful to be precise in the application for consent, so as to be sure to correctly trigger the obligations on the landlord to be reasonable, both under the lease itself, under, under statute, and to act within a reasonable time frame. And in those circumstances, we would liaise closely with members of Emma's team with regard to the exact correct method of service of the request for consent in compliance with the lease terms, making sure it's all done precisely by, uh, by the method that's, that's set out in the lease. And on a subletting then, a lot of the same points apply as on an assignment, but in addition, there do tend to be restrictions in the lease itself as to some, if not most, of the terms of a sublease to be granted. And of course, it's key to have close regard to those provisions in the lease itself before agreeing commercial terms with a potential subtenant, so as to be sure that what's agreed commercially between the what, what will be the landlord and, and, and the tenant, so that the tenant and the undertenant is something that the landlord will or can be required to consent to. One point that often comes up in this regard relates to the rent payable under the sublease. Um, leases will often provide that landlords need only consent to the subletting if the underlease rent is at a market rent, which of course leads to discussion about what is a market rent. Provided the parties are arm's length, the starting point should be that the market rent is what the proposed subtenant is prepared to pay at that point in time, provided, of course, that the premises have been offered in the open market to other people. However, if the landlord has other premises nearby or there are upcoming rent reviews, the landlord may not take that at face value and they might um, challenge it. Again, we would say that preparation is key. We would suggest gathering evidence of marketing and any other premises that have let at similar values so that you can defend it if challenged by the landlord and that you can persuade them to give consent on that basis. Um, if no agreement is reached, it's usually possible to find some compromise wording whereby the particular subletting can be consented to by the landlord without actually prejudicing the landlord's position if they feel particularly strongly on the point as to the, the market rent. So that's just a few points to think about in terms of subletting and assignment. So Emma and I have spoken a little bit about points to consider in divesting office space. And now I'm going to hand over to Helen, who will say a few words about other uses that that space can be put to. Thank you, Sarah. I'm going to say a few words about office repurposing from the planning perspective. This might be applicable where a break of the lease cannot happen and where an assignment or subletting of the office space is not possible. So I'm going to cover how various changes of use from office space would now be easier in planning terms since changes were brought in last September. All of the changes I'm going to mention are of course dependent on what is allowed under the terms of the lease and also on other requirements such as building regulations approvals. I'm going to start with what I'm going to call the old rules. Um, so those in place before last September and which are, are, are continuing now. Where a planning permission or a planning agreement does not prevent it, and where there is no Article 4 direction removing the right, offices may be converted into residential flats under prior approval permitted development rights. In addition to the former rules about transport and highways impacts, uh, contamination, flood risks, and impacts of noise 
from commercial premises on occupiers, there are now additional requirements which must be met under these PD rights, which have been brought in recently. As from July last year, habitable rooms in flats all needed to have external windows for natural light. And as from the 6th of April, there are new minimum space standards which must be met. That office to residential right will continue until the end of July this year. In addition, up to 500 metres squared of offices could be changed to a state-funded school or a registered nursery subject to prior approval from the council. Again, those permitted development rights continue until the end of July. On the 1st of September last year, what I'm going to call the new rules um, were brought in. A new use class called Class E came into being. This is a wide class covering commercial, business and service uses. Specific uses included in the class are offices, shops, uh, but not for the sale of hot food to take away, financial services, restaurants, where food and drink are mostly consumed on the premises, but not pubs, light industrial uses, research and development uses, indoor sport, recreation and fitness, most medical and health service uses, and creche, day nursery and day centres, where there's no residential element. So no planning consent is required from the council for changing the use to another use within the same class, so long as there's no existing planning consent or planning agreement preventing the change. So this means that an empty office could be converted so long as the lease allows it into any of the uses I have just mentioned. The new use class E will therefore provide a huge amount of flexibility. As the changes to the use class came into force last September, while the pandemic was affecting businesses a great deal, the full effect of the changes has not been seen yet, but there are likely to be some significant changes taking place in business and commercial areas in the future. So on the 31st of March, the government announced that the expected prior approval permitted development change of use from any use within the new Class E to residential would begin on the 1st of August this year. Uh, so taking over from the right to convert offices to residential, which as I've mentioned, expires at the end of July. The new PD right will be restricted to a total of 1,500 metres squared floor space area. And there will be a three month vacancy requirement. And before that, a need for a minimum of two years Class E use before it can be applied. The issues which will be taken into account by the council in the prior approval PD right are flooding, impacts of noise on the proposed dwellings um, from commercial premises, provision of natural light in all habitable rooms, contamination, and then in, in conservation areas only, um, consideration of the impact of the loss of the ground floor commercial business and service use, and generally um, impact of the loss of health centers and registered nurseries 
on the provision of such local services. Buildings of over 1,500 meters squared will be exempt from the new rules, but the focus will be on medium-sized buildings, which the government clearly thinks are more likely to be suitable for conversion. If on the 31st of July 2021, um, there is an Article 4 direction in place, preventing a change of use from office to residential, it will prevent this new right from being used until the 31st of July 2022. The right will apply in conservation areas, but not in other protected areas such as AONBs or national parks. There has been a lot of opposition to the announcement of the new right by the government last week. Uh, the RTPI, REBA and RICS have written to the Prime Minister asking for it to be reconsidered urgently. So subject to all the uh, conditions and restrictions which I've mentioned, there are many possibilities available under the general planning rules for changing the use of redundant offices. There are also potential opportunities for adding extra floors, such as of um, residential flats onto existing office buildings, which might also be an option worth considering if the lease allows it. But the rules for such prior approval permitted development changes are strict and complicated. We have a planning and property team which is already advising on the building up and the repurposing of buildings. So please do contact us if you would like to talk through some of these, these potential options. So I'll now hand back to Sarah. Thanks, Helen. Some food for thought there, definitely. Um, I hope that those of you listening have found something interesting or useful in our discussion today. We'd be very happy to discuss any issues further. So for any further information, do get in touch with any of the three of us or your usual contact at Charles Russell Speechley's. Thank you. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. 